Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host. And joining me on today's podcast is Luke Boggs. Luke, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing great, Kyle. Happy to be back yet again. And also joining us today is Megan Payne. Megan, how are you? I'm well. I can't believe that the first month of 2020 is almost over. I know. It's shocking. I mean, that means November is going to be here before we know it. I know, right? Well, speaking of November and people who are looking forward to November, we are here today to talk about someone brand new who is looking forward to November, and that is Representative Doug Collins, who has now entered the race for the U.S. Senate. He announced on Wednesday morning that he was going to challenge Kelly Leffler, the appointee to the Senate who was appointed by Governor Kemp to serve as Johnny Isaacson's replacement. Uh, Doug Collins enters that race to challenge Kelly Leffler, and as of today, that challenge will happen in a jungle primary election in November. So we're going to talk about Collins' entrance in the race, and then for the second bit of this episode, we are going to talk about the status of the other Senate race, the seat currently held by Purdue, where Purdue is currently amidst impeachment inquiries in the Senate defending President Trump. And Democrats on that side of the race have been relatively quiet. Um, So we have some minor updates to talk about. Uh, Ted Terry is no longer in that race. I guess that's a significant update. Uh, But we're going to check in on that and talk about when this race is going to happen, if it ever seems like it's going to happen. But first, let's start with Doug Collins entering this Senate race. This has been long speculated ever since Governor Kemp selected Kelly Leffler to serve in Johnny Isaacson's seat until the next election. It was rumored that Doug Collins was considering this. Uh, as our listeners will probably remember, Doug Collins was the preferred pick by President Trump for this seat. Governor Kemp actually made a trip to Washington in November of last year with Kelly Leffler when he had basically decided that Leffler was his pick for that seat to try to get Trump's support, and neither side budged. So Leffler got appointed, and now Collins is entering this race. Luke, what is your reaction to Doug Collins entering this Senate race? I am completely unsurprised that Doug Collins has entered into this race. Um, The only thing that I'm really surprised about is that it didn't happen quicker. Uh, It seemed like Collins has received a lot of reasons to do this. There's been polling done uh, by various outlets that shows that he has a you know much higher numbers than uh, our current senator <laughs> in the position. Uh, he has had a pretty you know loud presence in all the impeachment stuff, and he's still uh, roaming around on the news shows and is still someone who uh, President Trump talks about a lot and has a lot of support from. And despite Senator Leffler's attempt to do everything possible to make Donald Trump and every one of her critics uh, you know feel that they were wrong, I mean, no one's convinced. I mean, that, you know, because a lot of my friends have asked me, like, why is Collins doing this? And, like, why does Collins think he can win this? And I, I think the answer is really simple, which is, you know, like, sure, she's the incumbent senator, but most politicians in Georgia have absolutely no idea who she is. Most Georgians have no idea who she is. And it's really, really, really easy for any human being. I'm not even talking about, like, Republican, Democrat, like, they just know who Collins is. He's been at all these Republican events for years. Sure, you see him three times a year, but that's more times than you've ever seen Kelly Leffler at Republican events. And so he's just like people know who the Republican Party knows who he is. He's helped them out with other things uh, before. And this is one of the times where, you know, Kemp gets a lot of latitude appointing 
the commissioner of insurance because most politicians probably don't really care who the commissioner of insurance is. But when it comes to a U.S. senator who is going to make a lot of decisions, they care. And nothing Leffler could possibly do has, you know, in the amount of time she's had as a senator could change people's opinions that they think their friend or that guy they've seen a couple times, Doug Collins, is better than who? Megan, one of the obvious dynamics of Collins' entrance into this race is Kelly Leffler was at least attempting to position herself as being just as conservative as Collins, just as much of a defender of the president, just as much a fighter on issues like anti-abortion issues. Um, But Collins entered this race anyways. He didn't appear to see Kelly Leffler as much of a threat. There are a few senators that have been that have spoken out in support of Kelly Leffler since Collins entered the race this morning. Marsha Blackburn, senator from Tennessee, is one. And she tweeted, our party needs to do more than talk about supporting strong conservative women. We need to do it. Kelly Leffler is pro-life, pro-gun, and pro-Trump, and I'm proud to stand with Kelly. Uh, but that that is seems to be what is not happening with Collins' entrance into this race. What do you make of that dynamic of Leffler sort of checking all the boxes, at least nominally for Trump conservatives, uh, but a man jumping in to challenge her anyways. I've spoken about this on the podcast before that I think Leffler is part of this, you know, as you mentioned to Kyle, this strategy to like get women into the GOP and then to say, oh, we'll see this woman supports it. So those of you who feel like the GOP is kind of anti-woman, see, it's okay because we've got this, these women in leadership. Um, I think that a lot of that is some really interesting gymnastics, uh, mental and emotional gymnastics, to kind of convince the party that they're, that everyone is hung, everything's hunky-dory and everyone's doing the right thing and everyone's best interests are taken into account. Um, I think Collins jumping in is basically kind of Collins throwing all of that rhetoric out and basically just saying, okay, well, this is what the GOP really is. The other thing about Collins is that he may feel a bit of um, entitlement. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I actually kind of support him. If if that is his position, I would support him on this um, in the sense that he was kind of snubbed when Kemp went through all of this rigmarole to ask for applicants and then to go appoint this political unknown Leffler. Um, Collins was the one that everyone was talking about. Collins was the one that everyone was putting their money on. And then all of a sudden he doesn't have it. And he's left to basically defend the president in the house with no just desserts for everything that he's been doing and no recognition or support from Kemp. And so I, I think that he probably sees this seat as something that is a next step for him. And so he's going to go take it. Um, and honestly, I, you know, from where I'm sitting, I, if I were in his shoes, I would probably feel the same way. So y'all, with Collins' entrance, what do we think this means for this race? You did sort of see different factions of the Republican Party run to opposing corners here, the NRSC, the institutional uh, body to protect incumbent Senate Republicans. They said that they are backing Leffler. Governor Kemp, obviously, is going to be backing the choice that he made earlier this year. He he told a gathering near the state house today on Wednesday that he was proud of what Leffler has accomplished since she got to DC. Um, Eric Erickson, prominent conservative voice, 
has been critical of Collins' decision to enter into this race. Uh, he was critical of Collins describing him as working with Democrats to change election law so that he could set up a one-on-one -on -one primary with Kelly Leffler. We'll talk more about that legislation in a second. On the other hand, Collins does seem to have backers less prominent, I think, people who are associated with the Trump White House. What do we think about the dynamic as we enter this race? Do we think that Collins comes into this race with an upper hand and it's an uphill battle for Kelly Leffler? I think this goes back to what Luke said about how even though Leffler is the senator, she's still a virtual unknown. People might know her name now, but what do they really know about her? If they aren't people like us who are going and looking at the news every day and seeing what statements she's making and seeing what her platform is or anything like that, then Collins is the name that they know and trust and they know where he stands. I mean, not only do they know where he stands, but he's, you know, getting in front of Fox News every day and reminding them. The other thing, though, there there does seem to be some recognition on the part of some of Kelly Loeffler's backers that it has not been an entirely smooth rollout so far. Eric Erickson, who is backing Leffler primarily because he seems to be a supporter of the governor, um, said that Leffler is not going to out Trump support Collins. So now maybe she should be free to be her actual self instead of the Trump clapping automaton that some would have her be to win. Um, he <laughs> yeah. Can I, can I just stop you right there, Kyle? Yeah. <laughs> like this is the number one thing that I think is going to hurt Kelly Leffler more than any other factor. I mean, like, there is no other way to say this, so I'm just going to say it as clearly as I possibly can. We all know that Kelly Leffler is bullshit. <laughs> okay. Like, there's no other way to say it. We all know that this is not who she is. Like, every single public thing I've ever seen of her, this is not who she is. Now, she might believe the exact same things that she's saying, but she does not believe it in this way. Because I just, every every time I see her speak, every time I read a statement, it sounds like exactly what Eric Erickson just said, a Trump automaton of, like, someone who is not of the personality of Donald Trump and his side of the party, trying to, like, very painstakingly recreate it in a lab. And it just, it doesn't work in the same way that, you know, Collins is doing it very naturally. And so um, I, I think that's going to be her biggest problem in this is just like, we're not seeing who this person is. And you combine that with the fact that we don't know who she is. It, it's, it's really, really hard for her. Well, really quick, let me tell me who described it better. Eric Erickson described her as a Trump clapping automaton. Bill Torpy, AJC columnist, said to say Leffler looks wooden is an understatement. The ad, talking about one of her early ads, the ad comes across as a hostage video with Leffler's captors leveling their guns at her off camera. Whoa. I, wow. Withering criticism. I, I, yeah. Whoa. But I mean, the, the fact that this does not feel like an exaggeration from either of them, like neither one, like I, my reaction to that is that I have like, I wish I could have came up with either of those comments because it hits the nail directly on the head. That's yeah. Well, and I just kind of wonder like where her button is and how many uh, pre-programmed phrases she has. You know, she's like a toy I had. But, you know, that raises an interesting thing, though, because, you know, there's this criticism of her taking these stances and they don't appear authentic to her. They don't really appear to be what she believes. What if it turns out what she actually believes that she is a 
establishment, Chamber of Commerce, Republican, buddy-buddy with Mitt Romney. She took a broadside at Mitt Romney saying that he was working with the radical left to get witnesses that would uh, sling mud at Donald Trump in the impeachment trial. But, you know, that wasn't the Republican that she was before she donated, I believe, hundreds of thousands of dollars to the Romney campaign in 2012. She comes from a wealthy finance background. She's the co-owner of a WNBA team. This is not exactly like Doug Collins, rural Georgia uh, conservatism there. Kyle, Kyle, are you aware there are pictures of her with Stacey Abrams? (laughs) Oh, the horror. So assume that Kelly Leffler leans into something that appears to be more authentic of her given her background you know, what coalition does that leave for her in a Republican primary? Or, you know, let's for a moment here take, just for the sake of discussion, say that this will go to the jungle primary in November. What kind of coalition is there for her as an establishment, moderate conservative, the one that was pitched as the Republican that could bring back suburban women, but the one that has been missing from her messaging since she got nominated? I think I think she has the exact same lane as not Governor K- Casey Cagle. I I mean like let's let's like let's just not even like let's not overwork this in our heads. This was a fun experiment from Brian Kemp. A <laughs> it's weird, probably gonna fail. Right. A <laughs> like weird that. quote strategic experiment from Brian Kemp. I don't like the the strategy is so beyond right now. You know, there are there are a couple of scenarios here about how this could progress forward. Uh, there is now legislation in the state house that is backed by House Speaker David Ralston that would convert this race from the jungle primary in November to a normal party primary in the spring, and then a one-on-one Democrat versus Republican matchup in November on the same general election day as everything else. What do y'all make of that legislation? Do you think that it has legs or uh is this just sort of an attempt by Ralston to kind of voice his objections even though this won't be law so speaking specifically this is house bill 757 which i implore you to read part f which says you know one of my favorite phrases in any law which is notwithstanding any provision of law to the contrary in instances which, and then I won't recite them here, but it's literally like this exact scenario, <laughs> and it only happens almost in this exact scenario of having a special election that ha- has been temporarily filled by appointment that is, you know, yaga yaga, like just higging down the line of every single thing that we find ourselves in. Only thing that's uh, missing it's a, it's, is Kelly's name. Yeah, basically, like the only thing, the only thing more that could make it more specific would be to be, and the governor's name is Brian Kemp, or you know, <laughs> governor's name starts with a B and last name starts with a K. Um, but yes, so incredibly specific. I, the thing that this shows me is this is not a legislature that is really happy with a lot of decisions the governor is making. And so does this have legs? Uh, I, I, at this point, based off the budget fights that we're seeing and the House having Doug Collins be the pastor of the day, I think yesterday, 
and I'm pretty sure it was Terry England who was sitting next to him while he did his sermon of the day, uh, and Terry England being the budget chair. I think this is just a sign that like this is going to be a session where the Republicans uh, decide to uh, you know put on their best impression of Democrats and point their guns at each other. I gotta say, I'm just gonna interrupt you right there. I gotta say, I'm actually kind of pumped for that. You know, um, one of my like guilty pleasures is to watch something like hockey where people just beat the crap out of each other. And I'm kind of excited that like, you know, the Republicans are going to have an opportunity to do the same thing. You know, I enjoyed it during the governor's election here. And um, now that we've got some other stuff going on where the Republicans are just going to go like toe to toe, bring it and pop the popcorn. Definitely pop the popcorn. Well, I'd also point out that, um, you know, Democrats do have votes in the legislature and people forget about that uh, sometimes in Georgia. And uh, this is a place where, you know, Democrats could really influence the process because House Minority Leader Robert Trammell uh, was asked about this piece of legislation. I believe he was on the committee that voted it out where all the Democrats voted in support of it. He said that anytime you have a general election with one candidate for each party, it provides voters with a clear opportunity to evaluate the candidates and make a clear contrast between the candidates, which I, I agree. I mean, in general, you know, Democrats have gotten lucky a couple times. Uh, State Senator Jen Jurgen uh, first got to that chamber in a special election that had two Democrats. That was the result of a jungle primary. And sure, like, is it possible that we would have a scenario where uh, the couple Republicans who are no-namers that have draw- gone in this race and Doug Collins and Loeffler lower the vote so much that we have two Democrats in a jungle primary? Yeah, that could happen, but... You know, I, I I am a advocate for good policy and good reform, and I I don't know what we're gaining right now by having this special election that's going to ultimately cause us to have to run more elections and make people come out and vote more when it's already hard enough to get people to vote once, and we're paying to have all these other elections concurrent with this one. It just it just seems like a pretty big headache and hassle um, that I would not mind avoiding for completely nonpartisan reasons. But with you know with that in mind, the politics of this are are definitely a real factor behind this bill, and I think it's pretty unquestionable that if if this bill got passed um, and Kemp signed it. Uh, which he says he would veto it, but let's imagine he does, or the veto gets overturned, then I, I think Collins win this, wins this thing pretty hands down, and it's a pretty bad embarrassment for Kemp. And the thing I, I'm just amazed with, and, you know, <laughs> Iowa might be voting next week, but, you know, move over Iowa. I think our politics are far more interesting right now um, because, like, this is all connected. This is all part of the budget fight. This is all part of people being pissed off that Kemp made this decision uh, to begin with, and it's a real test of just how much power he has and just how far he can push things, uh, because the legislature is is pushing back here. They're pushing back on the budget, and I'm just I'm just kind of curious what you know what Kemp's reaction to this is going to be, um, because he definitely has some carrots and sticks as well, uh, and we haven't really seen him use any of them yet. PSA: Back to what Luke said about having to vote a whole lot potentially. You don't need a reason to request an absentee ballot in Georgia. Please vote. Request an absentee ballot if it's easier. Thank you. <laughs> Luke, going back to what you said about Bob Trammell's support of this legislation, the place it's, that, that it would matter 
that Democrats are backing this legislation would be if this legislation gets out of the House and the Senate and Governor Kemp vetoes it as he has promised, that veto override is going to require two-thirds vote in each chamber, particularly if Ralston can count on Democratic votes, he doesn't have to whip as many Republican votes to override the governor. The real question about this legislation, though, is does it get through the Senate? You have a lot of tension between Governor Kemp and House Speaker Ralston that has boiled out into the open among uh, surrogates and people who are speaking to the press. Um, The two of them have been amicable with each other. The one person who does not seem to be participating in this feud is the lieutenant governor, Jeff Duncan. And Duncan has nominally, like rhetorically, been supportive of some of Kemp's biggest proposals for this legislative session, talking about foster care reform and things of that nature. So Jeff Duncan could kill this bill in the Senate and not even have to allow it to get through both chambers, have Kemp veto it, and have this veto override fight. So I think the jury is out on whether or not this legislation is actually going to become law. But the one thing, before we transition to the Democrats here, the one thing that Kelly Leffler still had, the one card that Kelly Leffler can still play is if she can get the backing of President Trump. And it was interesting this morning, on Wednesday morning, the morning that Collins announces President Trump is signing the USMCA trade agreement, and he did give Kelly Leffler a shout out at that signing ceremony. It had about as much emotion behind it as Kelly Leffler's ads do, but nominally he did give her a shout out. Do we think that there's any chance that Leffler could garner President Trump's backing and fend off this challenge from Doug Collins? There's always a chance. So you're saying there's a chance. I mean, I I think the realistic thing that she could hope for is that like Trump just stays out of it, which if it again, again on this program, we say if it was any other president, um, you know, they probably would. But yeah, I I just Trump wanted Collins. He probably still wants Collins. I suspect he will still say that he want he 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 can't help himself if he truly wants doug collins like he's going to say i endorse doug collins because all it's going to take is him waking up you know at 4 a.m and being like you know i really want doug collins and just tweeting it out so i i suspect the best that she can hope for is just that trump potentially stays out of the race entirely the thing that brings to mind for me is, is a pretty awkward situation for Senator Perdue. He also has to run for re-election amidst this climate. He's a big Trump backer. He's also a big Kemp backer. Uh, Kelly Leffler will be his colleague through November, regardless of what happens with elections in the meantime. Um, so it puts him in a really interesting spot. Let's talk about the Democrats here, though. So the playing field on the Democratic side right now is that Matt Lieberman is in this race. He had he has good fundraising numbers so far, $700,000 in the most recent quarter that's been reported as of this point. Raphael Warnock has been rumored to get into this race. Reporting indicates that he seems very likely to do that, but it is nearly the end of January 2020, and he has not done that yet. Ed Tarver, former state senator, has said that he will jump into this race, although I don't think he has formally announced yet either. Luke, what is your initial impression of how this will play out on the Democratic side now that Collins is in this race and Warnock is, you know, probably going to be in it, but as of today, TBD? 
Well, I, I think it's really important to do some quick background on who Raphael Warnock is. He he, he is the uh, pastor of the Atlanta Ebenezer Baptist Church, and you're like, oh, that sounds familiar. That's because that is Martin Luther King Jr.'s church, um, and he has been someone who's around Georgia politics a lot. There's a big uh, church service around MLK Day uh, every year where Johnny Isaacson very famously went to every single one of them, and he's been the uh, Ra- Warnock's been the pastor for uh, quite a long time. Uh, what, what, so I'm about to say a lot of positive things about Warnock, so let me say my one negative thing. He is George's Mario Cuomo. We are always waiting for Raphael Warnock. One day he's going to run for something. Maybe it's maybe it's this, but I am in the firm camp of I will believe it when he puts his name on the paper saying I am running for this office um, because we thought he was going to run in 2014. We thought he was going to run in 2016. Didn't really hear anything in 18, but that's really because we didn't have any offices for him. Uh, but maybe this is the year where he actually does it. And I hope it is um, because I've seen Obama speak twice. And I've seen, I've seen Raphael Warnock speak probably six or seven times and they're pretty much on the same level and i don't say that lightly um he fires up a room uh pretty well i mean he's very passionate um he is a you know very smart guy he's he's been very active in in georgia politics and just uh the faith community for a long time and so i would be very excited uh about it and it, it would be pretty hard i think just from me seeing him before and seeing how passionate he is in these things if he's running a halfway decent campaign uh he's probably who i would support and i'd be excited for him to run I think it would be a hard time for Matt Lieberman or Ed Tarver to beat him in a Democratic primary because, one, Lieberman has raised some money, but he has the Kelly Loeffler on the Democratic side of, like, no one knows who he is, and if you do know who he is, it's probably because you've heard of his father, Joe Lieberman, and if you're a Democrat who is paying attention enough that you know who Joe Lieberman is, that's probably a bad thing for Matt Lieberman, not a good thing. And the other thing is, I like, no one knows who Ed Tarver is, and the third thing is Raphael Warnock is very closely aligned with Stacey Abrams and not in like a political way. I mean, like they've just known each other and worked together for a really long time. And I only suspect that will help him. Um, and I suspect he will raise, he will outraise Ed Tarver and Lieberman pretty quickly, I would think. Um, also, uh, we, you know, we, we've kept saying on this show, when will the Democrat, you know, uh, that the state party supports announce it would be Warnock if he announces it's him. And the reason why we haven't seen someone with the state party's backing announced is probably because he's flirting with it. Um, so, you know, all those factors make me think he's probably thinking about it. Uh, last thing I'll address is, you know, it is late. It is significantly late. Um, you know, Michelle Nunn, the last person to run for Senate in Georgia who had a decent chance because... Oh, let's please not talk about Barksdale. Um, but, you know, she announced in November of the year before. January's pretty late. But, hey, Doug Collins is announcing in, in the January of the year of the election. So if Doug Collins can do it, I think Warnock can do it. But he definitely needs to do it soon, like next two, three weeks, or it, it's really <clears throat> becoming a problem. Um, but, yeah, I'd be very excited. I think most Democrats would be very excited about it. Um, and for, for people who go to Democratic Party things, are involved in the party, you pretty much already know who he is, and you know that he is the real deal, so I would be excited by his candidacy, and I think he definitely, out of the people who I think are actually considering running, would be one of the stronger candidates the Democrats uh, have on the table. Now, the side effect of it 
being late is the fact that the slow start to the race for Democrats in the Isaacson seat, combined with a relatively sleepy start to the race for Democrats in the Purdue seat, there are four of those, well, there were four, Ted Terry dropped, so there's now three, we'll talk about that one in a minute here. But that means that Democrats largely have not been visible in this Senate contest the way that, for instance, Mark Kelly, former astronaut, uh, who has a really good chance to flip an Arizona Senate seat. He has been in that race for a little while. Um, I believe North Carolina has had a competitive candidate for a little while. D- is there downside, Megan, for Democrats to not have had a top-notch recruit that had a lot of visibility, somebody who would be messaging on things like impeachment, opposing the president on that issue, or uh being a surrogate for presidential candidates in Georgia. I mean, you don't really have any of that happening among top tier Democrats in Georgia. Is there a cost to that? I don't really feel like there's a cost. Not that there's not a total cost, right? But I I feel like the candidates can speak for themselves and can really run on the platforms that they are comfortable running on without being like these massive biggest personalities in the room. And I honestly think that that speaks to a lot of Democrats because we're not necessarily, while it is fun to have these giant figureheads, you know, we've got, we've got several, several that we can think of, you know, Sanders and Warren are, are two of them, obviously clearly not in this race or in the presidential, but you know, like not everyone is endorsing the two big figureheads. In fact, there has been some backlash on the fact that that's just what they are. They're figureheads, so they're not going to have the party's best interests in mind, or they're too extreme, or they're just the loudest ones. So I think that there, it, it could be nice to have a Democratic candidate who is maybe not the biggest personality in the room, but really has it together and can quietly convince people, hey, I can get the job done and here's why. So I, I think there is a cost, though, uh, and it's sort of agreeing with me- you, Megan, but also disagreeing. The fact that no one has really emerged from the Senate primary on the Democratic side against Purdue is either a testament to this field or a deep criticism of it. So the the good side potentially could be maybe Democrats know exactly who the three remaining candidates are and they feel pretty good about them and they're just basically just kind of like watching and waiting and when the primary comes around people are going to vote and they're all equally satisfied with all three or uh, the alternative which I think is actually true is no one knows what is happening in that race and no one knows who these three people are and I, I you know, we haven't seen the fundraising disclosures yet and I wish they were out but I suspect the numbers won't be great. Ossoff probably will have the most again. He's announced his and, haul. I believe it's over two million, but none of the other no, that's candidates, actually pretty good. None of the other candidates in that race, though, have announced their haul. Well, I, I recant that Ossoff's number. I'm actually, I think that's pretty good considering it's a contested Democratic primary in Georgia. So, I think the problem is just most people aren't tuned in, and these three candidates haven't done anything to actually get people's attention and arguably the candidate who was trying the hardest to get people's attention was ted terry who is now the former senate candidate and you know we we've seen Teresa tomlinson start this new campaign where she's talking about georgia gumption and she's hired lewis elrod who is a former young democrats of georgia president former young democrats of america president so they're they're obviously trying to revamp there um happy to see they're doing that because i just don't think any of them are doing anything that's working 
I haven't really seen much from them. I haven't seen much activity from their campaigns beyond the very typical 10 million fundraising emails you get. Um, so I think the cost of that is, is Georgia is a huge state. It costs a lot of money to run even a bare bones, good campaign that does the basic blocking and tackling. And they're going to have to start after whoever wins the primary raising a ton of money to make up the lost ground that they've, you know, that they have. And uh, hopefully they can do that because whoever comes out of this primary, I'm hoping is the person that has run the best campaign and is not the person who is either at the top of the ballot or is just off off by default. If he's running the best campaign, great. I'm happy he wins, but I'm just a little concerned that people aren't very tuned in and there's a lot of apathy around that seat. And I don't really know why, because I feel like uh, David Perdue has given Georgia Democrats a lot of reasons to not like him. You know, well, it's, it's yeah, one thing has. for the entire electorate to not care. I re- you know, it's like I'm a little concerned that it doesn't seem like Georgia Democrats are really fired up by the prospect of removing David Perdue. Uh, I haven't really felt that energy. I and I don't know if it's just it's just too late, you know, far out, and people just aren't thinking about it, and they're just kind of really focused on the presidential. Well, election. I'm going to send that energy through the microphone to you, Luke, and everyone who's listening to the podcast, because I, as I believe I've said on here previously, I hate that guy. Yeah, I mean, I think the other cost is nationally the ranking of battleground states is sort of starting to work itself out. You have early investments from parties as the presidential candidates are pretty soon going to get beyond uh, the early states. Super Tuesday is going to be right around the corner and Democratic candidates for president will begin to set up some infrastructure in the state of Georgia and probably sort of be thinking about what a strategy looks like for the fall. Um, Democrats are learning every single day why it would be important in their view for them to control the Senate and that path to regaining the Senate It could go through a state like Iowa, which has been difficult for Democrats recently, or it could follow more of a Sunbelt route. North Carolina is going to have competitive races. Arizona is going to have competitive races. And Georgia is a two-for-one, potentially. The fact that there is lack of enthusiasm there, um, I wonder if it, you know, if you're thinking about some of the best national Democratic field staff that are going to be looking to work on statewide campaigns, you're going to have a really complicated environment in Georgia with a presidential race, with Senate races that may be of different configurations, with a battle for the state house. There's just going to be so much going on that having experienced veteran people seems like that should be the thing that would be on the minds of the Democrats if they were going to take advantage of all the attention that's going to come, all the money that's going to come, you know, their attention and money and the fact that the races will be close is no guarantee for Democrats that they will turn the tide and actually win these races, take back the state house, take either of these Senate seats or take the electoral votes. And ironically, the situation might even get worse for the Purdue Democrats um, if Warnock gets in, because he will. I'm just going to go out on a limb. I think he would suck up the oxygen in Georgia a lot quicker and a lot hotter than the other candidates will. And I, I would not be surprised if there's a pretty healthy fundraising discrepancy between the two of them. Maybe maybe this doesn't affect Ossoff as much just because he's a little more of an established brand. And maybe I'm a little just too hot on <laughs> Warnock, but uh, I don't think I am. 
Uh, so that that's going to be a very interesting thing to watch in my mind. Well, if you're from the outside and you're looking who for who to invest in, you have Raphael Warnock, who, as you mentioned, Luke is is a really persuasive speaker, a really prominent figure, who will have the backing of party infrastructure, taking on either Doug Collins, who has never won a statewide race, although you know people think his campaign bona fides are probably much better than Kelly Leffler's, or Kelly Leffler, who seems too weak to be able to get out of a primary versus a relatively unknown Democrat taking on David Perdue, one of President Trump's staunchest defenders who has raised tons of money and who is running as an incumbent. So like that, I think does play into it too, is, you know, which investment is going to be better. You know, you would maybe think that you could take both if you put a lot of investment in, but if you think you're only going to be able to get one, squeak one out, yeah, Warnock may be the one that gets the investment and not not on the other side. What do we think about the fact that this is so muddled with the Purdue seat, the Democrats that are still in that race, Sarah Riggs, Amico, Teresa Tomlinson, John Ossoff, they haven't really tried to draw contrast with each other, at least not in a way that's very prominent that I've seen. There was one forum where the three of them were there. Ted Terry was still in the race. So he was in the forum as well. And they all put a target on David Purdue do we have any sense about the dynamic among Democrats in that race? Is it Ossoff's to win because he has the most money and seems to be capitalizing on his good fundraising from the 2017 special election? Or do we do we have any other sense of it at all, really? Well, uh, this is a game where I highlight I really wish we had the fundraising numbers. So let's just assume that both Sarah Examico and Teresa Tomlinson will raise less than $2 million. I'm going to guess they're both going to be less than a million, but maybe close. Maybe I'll be pleasantly surprised, and they both raised over a million. I I think the problem goes back to what I was saying and how Georgia Democrats are viewing this race is that there are three candidates that are fine. Not excited, not overjoyed, not really fired up. They'd just be fine. And because of that, I think there's an incredibly high cost to any one of them going negative. And I think that is really tied to the fact if someone is kind of leaning one way or the other and someone does a really aggressive attack against them, it's it's just hard for, you know, that to not have a really big potential for backfiring. And I, I think they have adopted the approach as candidates that their job is to prove to Democratic voters that they will be the best messenger against David Perdue, that they will be the best candidate against David Perdue. And that's why they're approaching it in this way. Um, ultimately, I suspect when we get a little bit closer to May, I think we're going to see some some you know punches thrown. And it'll be interesting to see who breaks the seal on that because I kind of feel like all the other campaigns are just waiting for one of the other ones to go negative, And then it's just going to be uh, a, a shootout. But I mean, it really, it, it might not. And in that scenario, I think Ossoff probably gets it just because he has more money and because he is a little bit more well-known and he just, you know, rides to November. Uh, I think the place where we really see contrast and really see the Democrats aiming at each other a little bit more is if this three-way race becomes a two-way runoff and it's, you know, two candidates having who've already run before, but now they've got 50%, uh, they're going to, they're going to fight each other for that 50, I think. Um, and that, that will be interesting to see what happens, but it's tough for them because 
really the majority of the rest of this race is going to be during the Democratic presidential primary period where that's where most people's attention is. And I just I just think none of them have done anything to even attempt to break through because, you know, God bless Teresa Tomlinson for doing a rebranding, but Georgia Gumption is just like not that exciting. It's just, it just isn't. Yeah. So, so two things from my end. First of all, as much as I previously mentioned just a few minutes ago that I really enjoy seeing people duke it out, I will enjoy it less if it enters this race just because I, I don't want to see that's not the type of election I want to see. I do want this one to be boring. I want this one to be about policy. I want the privilege of, and I do realize that it's a privilege, of selecting the candidate that I think has the best platform. Now, obviously, that's not attention getting. That's not fireworks. And that's very pie in the sky. And that's not typically how elections work. Well, but if and, I had my Megan, way. And with, Megan, with Terry exiting, they may all have very similar platforms. And, and that's, ac- that's also accurate. So, so you know, that's kind of part of me kind of hopes for a boring election at the same time, as I previously mentioned, I do kind of enjoy that sort of drama. So it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world, but it's not what I want to see for this particular election. The second thing I want to talk about is this Georgia gumption thing that keeps coming up. Does anybody else immediately replay scenes from the holiday when they hear the word gumption? Is that just me? I've never seen that movie. That so. might be what? just you, which may also underline the problems for Teresa Tomlinson of rebranding on that word. Oi. Okay. Well, everybody. It's alliteration. We all know it's it's because they both start with G. Well, everybody go watch The Holiday. Like, kind of, there's this really cute old man who's like a film writer. And, and, and he's hanging out with this girl who is hanging out in California for a vacation, who's played by Kate Winslet. And he basically tells her that, you know, she needs to figure out how to have gumption. And then she all of a sudden discovers that she has it. And and I love that movie. And I watch it at least at least once every holiday season, which was not that long ago. So it's very much in my head. The gumption was inside Teresa Tomlinson all along. There you go. Anyway, welcome to what happens in Megan's brain when she hears certain words. So the one thing to close on here, Ted Terry is no longer a part of this race. He has decided that he will run for a seat on the DeKalb County Commission. Um, So he will also be leaving his post as the mayor of Clarkston to run for that seat. Um, Why do we think that Ted Terry didn't gain any traction in this race? I think the reason that Terry didn't get as much attention as I will admit I thought he would get, because I really thought he would get more when he initially announced, is just that you know, no offense to him, it just didn't seem like he put a lot of effort and thought into what was the point of his candidacy and into the mechanics of campaigning. Uh, yeah, there were plenty of stories of him hosting events and not really providing people a way to give money at fundraising events uh, and saying that they email people afterwards. <laughs> and that's just that's just not how you do fundraising events. Um, so, you know, God, God bless him for, you know, trying to make the, uh, you know, to add a little bit of difference into the race. But this was something we talked about, Kyle. The, like, premise of his campaign was, I am going to be the radical, progressive Bernie Sanders of Georgia 
in this race. I'm the young millennial mayor, blah, 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 blah. And then he actually starts running. And like, we, we asked him questions that we were just shocked. Like his answer was not the like super far left answer. Like he was really uh, bearish on impeachment for a while. And he just, he just did not seem to stake out the ideological profile that he seemingly was aiming for with his initial announcement. And it was just really wishy-washy. It was really wishy-washy. And I, I, I just don't feel like he had the same, you know, fire for running for this race. And I think it's unsurprising that he's now running for a different office because I think he, you know, probably just put his cart in front of his horse a little bit here. And I think just a final thought specific to some of the policy positions that he had that he switched from being, for instance, a backer of a Medicare for all who wanted to go on full-fledged single-payer Medicare for all. There is a lane for people who are the most purely progressive democratic socialists to build a national grassroots fundraising base, notoriety for being uncompromising in their progressive principles that they're fighting for. But if you don't make that who you are from the beginning, you totally undermine the rationale for that argument that you are uncompromising because these problems are too important not to shoot for the moon in terms of solutions that are needed. And so that that was the thing that was the mismatch for me there and why in some places, you know, a candidate like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez caught on nationally because she carried that Bernie Sanders style message to her campaign and was uncompromising about it. And, and Ted Terry didn't start in that place. He ended his campaign there, but he didn't start it there. All right. Well, I think that is where we are going to end the show for today. We will have more updates on the state legislative session coming to you again next week. Uh, There are things starting to bubble up in legislative session. Some small legislation is moving. The main storyline continues to be the tension between the governor and the House Speaker over the budget, over legislation related to Collins and Leffler. Um, so that'll be the storyline to watch as we move forward. And then we'll update you as some of the other less high profile issues move forward as well. But for now, we are going to leave it there. So Luke, thank you for joining the podcast today. Happy to be here. And Megan, thank you as always. Thank you. Alrighty. I will talk to you again soon. That's our show for today. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Peach Pod. Thanks as always to our fantastic interns, Olivia Bauer, Peyton Childers, and Kelly Dobso for their help researching this episode. Until next time, take care, y'all.